Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick and today I'm joined by Aurora Del Ali to talk about the Rome E Prix. So um, Aurora um, obviously is going through an exciting time in her life. Uh, she's just joined Team Lazarus um, with, with with whom she is uh, uh, competing in the uh, Open GT Championship uh, with the uh, Bentley Continental GT3. Um, and um, also, uh, something else which you posted recently on social media, Aurora, is that uh, um, y- you are, and I say this jokingly, the potential future scourge of any football clubs that want to break UEFA's financial fair play system because uh, you-, you are going to be working with the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, so t- tell us a little bit about that, if you can. That's exciting. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Stuart, for having me on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's honestly um, a pretty new adventure for me, um, something that I've wanted to do for a very long time, being a law student. Uh, I'm in my final year, of course, I'm uh, preparing my thesis for the Master of Laws. Um, and part of my trainership program is, uh, you know, actually working alongside um, a lawyer, a professional lawyer in a law firm. Um, and I was lucky enough to um, be chosen by my former professor in sports law, which is already quite peculiar because, to be honest, in Italy, we don't have many universities actually teaching sports law. Um, and we also did the course in English as well. So it was a pretty, you know, international environment. Um, so, yeah, I'm basically now I'm trying to... Um, offering my assistance both in terms of like language and of course legal knowledge in some proceeding, some proceedings in front of the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne. Um, and yeah, it's definitely a very, very new field for me, something that is very niche in the world of, uh, you know, law in general is not something that many people pick up. Um, and it's perceived maybe as boring, I don't know, from, from the perspective of a sports fan. But for me, to be honest, like um, having the possibility of putting together my two biggest passions, which are law and sports, uh, and making that potentially my job is an incredibly exciting perspective. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, the future challenges of, of this new role. Yeah, and I think I think Cass has been in the headlines quite a lot in the past year, obviously because of the Manchester City case, which was uh, um, in 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 the end uh, um, they they were cleared due to um, um, lack lack of evidence, essentially. But um, it, it's it's interesting because uh, we we hear so much about Cass as an organisation. Uh, people say, "Oh, well, we think this is unfair. We're taking we're taking our case to Cass." Please do go and follow Aurora um, on um, at the Racing Chick um, on uh, Instagram and Twitter because um, she's got some great pictures and behind the scenes stuff uh, from uh, GT Open Championship testing. Uh, and um, I, I know that we're mostly an electric racing podcast here, but um, I, I do love fast cars of any kind, particularly massive, chunky uh, carbon coloured ones such as the Bentley. <laughs> so. Yeah, pl- please do keep posting those photos and please please do go and follow her as well if you're not already doing that. Um, so thanks for that. Um, all right, so it was your home race, wasn't it? It was the Rome Prix. Uh, usually it calls for celebration, but uh, this time it was, it was a behind-closed-doors city street race, which I don't think was ever on the original template um, of Alejandro Agag's plan for Formula E when he founded it. Um, I don't suppose anyone ever thought, what if there's going to be a pandemic that stops fans from coming to the races that they're meant to be coming close to? So it was it was a bit of a Rube Goldberg solution, but it seemed to work pretty well in terms of the entertainment spectacle, would you agree? Um, yeah, definitely. To be honest, like seeing the Romy Prix, first of all, from home, which is a first for me, because from the first edition of the Romy Prix, I've always been uh, on site to report on the event. And like, secondly, seeing it devoid of, you know, the audience that usually kind of swarms really to the Eur um, neighborhood to, to watch the race was a very, a very weird experience. Um, particularly because this year the different, um, the new track layout, which I'm sure we'll have like many, plenty of reasons to talk about later in the podcast, um, offered like a very, you know, significant change of scenery. Uh, and in my opinion, for the better, 
um, the Eur neighborhood. Um, I think it passed like very briefly on um, on the international uh, commentary uh, that it was built in the 1920s. Of course, it was it was one of the, the you know one of the biggest changes uh, done in the cities. Um, in the city by Mussolini, unfortunately, not not a very, <laughs> definitely not a very, you know, a great part of Italian history. Um, but yeah, it was basically built during that era, um, and it's always been beloved by by Romans um, and Italians in general. Of course, I'm talking about the neighborhood and <laughs> not about Mussolini, um, because yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a some sort of like green heart in the in the middle of the city because there is a lake um, and we have plenty of parks and also like plenty of monuments and so i think that the new layout layout would have definitely provided for like new uh grandstands that have would have been like extremely scenic so um, it's been it's been a pity to be honest i've lived in rome for five years um when i was younger so yeah, I feel it. I feel it even closer to home, and it would have been amazing to have an audience. But honestly, like the current situation um, with the pandemic here in Italy, would have never allowed for that. I'm actually, you know, surprised that we have the Ypres at all. So. Hmm. Um, it, well, yes, uh, particularly uh, since uh, it, Italy was at one point the worst hit country um, in the world by the virus. I think I think it's uh, I think it's a miracle what uh, what the doctors have done over there. I think it's incredible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, we had very strict lockdown rules, um, especially during 2020. Uh, so, yeah, mm, we were during March and April last year. So exactly one year ago, I think like we made headlines all over the world with the number of you know cases that we had. Um, but yeah, honestly, you know, there is some sort of stereotype around Italian people being, you know, not very disciplined, always prone to breaking the rules. And I think we, we proved uh, during this past year that it is, in fact, you know, a silly stereotype, as most stereotypes mm. about, you know, entire populations are. Um, because, yeah, we really, we really, you know, lived by the rules and abided to the rules um, and I think it, it proved like how effective social di distancing and, you know, restrictions and basically every, any advice coming from the, um, from, you know, the World, he World Health Organization has been in uh, the fight against coronavirus. Yeah. And I, I think you've got every right to be proud. I think they've done an amazing job. So, uh, yeah, uh, hats off anyway. But uh, or, or whatever the Italian is for hats off. I'm not sure what that is. I mean, obviously, this is a podcast um, not only about the racing, but about the race adjacent stuff. And I've been really looking to do some uh, do some stuff around the tracks uh, for a long time. Obviously, I haven't been to a Formula E race for going on two years now, so I've not been able to do that myself. But this is an opportunity. So let's talk about the circuit. But first of all, let's talk about the uh, EUR district, um, which obviously was chosen because it's a business district, I would have thought, and it was easy enough to uh, coordinate off for a weekend for a race. But um, also, yeah, it, it's quite beautiful from some angles. And I, I know that uh, there is that, uh, well, extremely unfortunate history, but um, I was reading up about it. And uh, apparently in the 1950s, it was it was reappropriated as this place that was meant to bring natural beauty and greenery, like you said, and also to bring businesses a new place to a new place to be. So actually, has it become a kind of symbol of new Rome ever since then, would you say, in some ways? I mean, it has become uh, some sort of catalyst for innovation as well. Um, I honestly don't remember if you if you had the chance to to cover um, the Romi Pre on site in any occasion, but basically, I haven't, unfortunately. Yeah, um, basically, so the the paddock and uh, you know the media center specifically structures are you know in a very new building which is called the La Nuvola, which basically literally means the cloud. Um, which is, you know, a ver very recent construction. I think it was, it was, it was basically being built when I was living in Rome. So it must have been around ten years ago. Um, which, yeah, served as a catalyst for innovation and like new exhibitions, specifically, you know, uh, tech-related exhibitions. 
Um, so yeah, no, I mean the the Eur uh, district is definitely you know it's it's kind of you know the best of both worlds in Rome because you kind of have you know the the history which is always you know as unfortunate as it might be it's, it's so part of you know a country's identity um and then you have of course the business and as you said before the greenery and um many people just enjoy going in the eur parks and um actually we have a small artificial lake as well so basically you you can get a boat and just have you know a stroll through the lake which is always like a favorite activity of romans um during the weekend so yeah it's it's honestly a very beloved part of the city i wouldn't say that it can ever replace you know the 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 city center because to be honest like from I, i wouldn't even know how to define the city center in rome it's just complete something completely different than anything else in the world um of course it's beautiful and the history is so rich uh but yeah it's it's nice for you know the roman people who get a bit tired of just you know, seeing tourists around the Colosseum. Um, because, yeah, I mean, Rome is always very crowded with tourists. Unfortunately, with COVID, this is no longer the reality, but it used to be. Um, so people living in Rome tend to, you know, flee tourists, basically, um, going into a bit more secluded parts of the city. Yeah, um, it, it looked wonderful from television, and uh, I, I very much hope that uh, I, I will... Um, uh, be able to go to the race uh, next year. Um, and also, uh, the new track, as you mentioned earlier, uh, let's talk about that because um, all all through last season and the season before, um, I was chatting to guests who were all saying, well, the tracks need to adapt to suit the Gen 2 era. Um, they're, they're, too, they're too slow, they're, um, they're too narrow, and they're resulting in too many um, unnecessary impacts. Well, there were plenty of unnecessary impacts this weekend, but uh, not due to the fault of the track. That is an amazing looking track and also amazingly filmed as well. I think um, with those tracking cameras going down the going down the straight leading up to, I think, the roundabout where the Marconi obelisk is, um, they've, they've managed to find a way to show the speed of the cars in a straight line um, without just... Um, without just having a camera that pans along and shows the back of the car. And um, they also managed to circumvent Formula E's previous need to have uh, 20 meter high DHL boards covering up the scenery as well. I, I felt like <laughs> we saw a lot more of the city than we did previously with the Formula E race. So, uh, you, know, you know, thumbs up in terms of presentation, but also in terms of uh, the way that the track allowed overtaking and proper racing, I thought. But w- what are your thoughts on the track? I mean, to be honest, I fell in love with the with the new layout as soon as I saw it. Um, but at first, I was pretty scared about the consequences of this new track because I was chatting with um, a very good friend of mine, which is incidentally um, the development driver for one of the biggest uh, Formula E teams. Um, and we were just randomly chatting and I was, you know, inquiring about what he thought on the on the new track. And um, he was on sim duties, as he always is. Um, And he was pretty scared, to be honest. He was like, um, he thought that the bumps were too significant and that some turns were too narrow. He was especially complaining about turn seven um, that I remember of. Um, So yeah, honestly, I was a bit scared because we know that Formula E is very prone to like collisions and uh, pretty dramatic incidents. Um, but I think in the end, honestly, we, we saw less of a carnage than what could have possibly been. Um, as my final thoughts on the track, I would say that I much preferred it as a qualifying track rather than, you know, for the race. Um, I think, you know, it really put the racecraft of every single driver to the test, especially on with those weather conditions as well, to be honest, like... Rain in Rome is never pleasant, and I can imagine that rain on track uh, is even less pleasant on that layout. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't particularly enjoy the, the races, not because they weren't you know exciting, but just because I thought that there were a bit less uh, overtaking opportunities than normal. There were a couple of corners that were perfect for overtaking, and I really appreciated those couple of occasions. 
But for my taste, I think that's more of a qualifying track. And um, regard, uh, regarding what you said about seeing, you know, less sponsors and more scenery, um, I can't say for sure, of course, uh, but knowing like how the mayor of Rome, Virginia Raggi, uh, has gone around with the negotiations to have the race, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we knew that that was like a specific request coming from the municipality of Rome. Um, of course, the city really cares about Formula E. Um, and I think it's also like, to be honest, it's, it's a matter of prestige for both the city and the competition as well, because having that beautiful of a scenery is just, is just unparalleled in my opinion. Like, I, I know I probably sound, you know, biased in this, but I do think that's the best scenery that Formulary has at the moment. Hmm. Um, the mayor of Rome uh, was very prominent on TV throughout the weekend. And uh, um, you presumably get a flavour of the fact that obviously London and New York have, uh, um, sh- shall we say, uh, up and down relationships with their mayors. Uh, m- many people love Sadiq Khan and others uh, don't. Um, so uh, what, what, is the, what is the general impression from the public? She, she seems like quite a, fun, quite a formidable person in interviews, but uh, um, what do people think of her as, as a politician and um, as as a person running the city um well honestly when she came, firstly came uh in the elections for you know um running for ma- for the role of mayor of rome it, she was a very polarizing figure because i don't want to discuss you know politics too much yeah, especially because you know it's it's honestly like a very, a very you know long topic of discussion but basically she comes from a party which is currently you know very polarizing in italy um mm. which is the five star movement uh, i think they made headlines all over the world as well because yeah. they're seen as very you know um, they try to portray this image of being very honorable people uh, but you know many in italy believe they do not have like the right set of skills and competencies to actually run a government or a city which of course i mean it's up for deba- for debate and up for discussion um she's definitely a competent per- person she's a lawyer so she has she has you know a law background which again not to toot our own horn but i think it's very important for a politician not fundamental but definitely important um but yeah i mean she has proven many of her critics wrong but her um, mandate as mayor of Rome has been very polarizing and full of ups and downs, to be honest. Uh, mm. She didn't have many scandals, um, I guess you could say, um, but I think she, she has failed to, to capture like, the true popularity of being loved by everyone in the city. She, she doesn't have that. She remains a very um, controversial figure, let's say. Okay, well, someone else who remains a very controversial figure, but um, is is generally loved by many people, I think, still is uh, Jean Eric Verne, and he <coughs> uh, he took the um, first uh, race win. Um, but uh, this was um, so. Diaz de Cheetah decided to wait until Rome to debut their uh, new season powertrain. Um, reasoning i think that uh, the more development time they gave it the more an advantage more of an advantage they'd have and also given that they were uh, streets ahead of the field on pace in berlin last year i think they felt that they could probably style it out in diria with the old powertrain which i i think proved at least in pace terms to be basically true um, mercedes obviously had an advantage over everyone but this time around, would you say that the DS powertrain, um, obviously it gave Jev a win, but uh, did it show the kind of pace advantage that uh, many in the media were talking about beforehand? Um, I-, I felt it was a close run thing. It was it was obviously a step forward, but it felt like they had really caught up with the front rather than getting the advantage that they had at the end of last year. Yeah, honestly, I would agree with you in the sense that if I had to describe, um, you know, the new powertrain's performance in a word, um, I would say underwhelming, but not necessarily with, you know, a particularly negative connotation to the term, just in terms of, yeah, not, not living up to the media's expectations of what could have, should have been. 
Um, so yeah, I would I would agree in saying that it probably did more, more about you know catching up to the competition than actually proving again to have a massive advantage over everybody else, as it was you know pretty dominant uh, during the past season. Um, no, to be honest, I would say as always in in Formula E, it's very difficult to make any predictions on you know the actual balance and the actual forces. Um, battling it out in the in the field, um, I think of course we're still discussing about you know a very very competitive team, and I think that at that level of competitiveness, you know the the you have some sort of a diminishing returns situation in the sense that you know the advantages become more and more difficult to spot, um, but you're actually you, it can be very easy to lose the edge that you previously had. So, um, yeah, I think they will still be a very strong contender, um, as always, for for the final title and in general in every single race. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't say it was anything particularly shocking or surprising. If anything, I think, yeah, it fell below most people's expectations. Yeah, and I think it was important for Van and for his um, uh, place in the team, not not because he is under any risk whatsoever of being dropped from a team that he's a shareholder in. I mean, that's never going to happen. But uh, but because Antonio very much, uh, obviously by winning the title, uh, um, appeared to be taking over as top dog in the team. And I think um, with De Costa having uh, problems of his own in the midfield scramble there, um, well, Tachita obviously needed Jev to uh, to take advantage at the front. And uh, he showed that he's still very much capable of doing that. Um, wh- one thing which has been interesting to me is that he's signed up to race with Peugeot um, in their new Le Mans hypercar beginning, I think, in 2023. Three, so mm-hmm. um, w- would you see this as uh, part of a long-term plan by him? Do do you do you see maybe Formula E as not being forever on his part, or uh, obviously um, they're all part of the Stellantis group, so there's no problem with him racing for both. But uh, do you think he's maybe got one eye on um, a? Uh, if you like, um, more sustainable career future um, as an endurance driver, because uh, you you can generally race in endurance for much longer than you can in Formula E or single-seaters, can't you? Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, of course, I can't know his plans for sure, but I think that, first of all, um, anybody signing up for the Hypercar project right now is certainly in it for the long run, because... You know, the Hypercar, you know, research and development platform is something so incredibly expensive and, you know, also so difficult to set up in terms of, you know, having drivers that are acclimatizing to that, that it's it's definitely at least a, a 10 year involvement, not necessarily with the drivers, of course, but with the team itself. So I do think it's definitely a long term project of this. Um, I would say that at least for some time, it's perfectly t- sustainable to to race both in uh, WEC and in Formula E. And actually, the calendars of both are usually made up so that, um, you know, drivers can potentially race in both because we've seen and we know for a fact that a vast majority of the grid has either already raced in, in WEC or is currently racing in WEC. It's it's very compatible. Um, it's of course a, a vastly different set of you know skills, um, but they are kind of transferable to a certain extent. Um, so yeah, definitely, I would say that probably um, the hypercar involvement is more of a long-term project for Jev in the sense that he will potentially he could be racing hypercars for longer than he races single seaters, just for the sheer fact that you know. Sports cars in general, even prototypes, are a lot less physical than single-seaters. But again, to be honest, like for Marie, I think it's it's a different arrangement anyway, because the G-forces you sustain in Formula Marie are not um, as, you know, um, challenging as the ones that you may sustain in Formula 1. And I think that's the main um, caveat in terms of, you know, physical strength. Um, but I mean... It wouldn't be it wouldn't be unheard of if he did the other way around. So keep on racing in Formula E uh, and just giving up on um, 
you know, the WEC programs as well. I don't think that's going to happen. But for example, um, we've seen that Andre Lotter has done that, his former teammate, um, after a very successful career in endurance racing. It's He's a three-time Le Mans winner, so <laughs> that's definitely a success. Mm-hmm. Uh, he decided to fully focus on Formula E quite late in his career because he's turning 40 this year, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, um, yeah. And Sam Bird it also kind of went in that same route in the sense that he diminished his involvement with the GTE pro program for Ferrari last year to fully focus in um, on Formula E. So. Well, to, to be to be honest, he actually lost his job in the GTE Pro because Formula E's original calendar had so many clashes. Uh, that that was uh, that was one of the many uh, dubious factors behind uh, his teammate uh, from the previous season, James Collado, being uh, being drafted into Formula E. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was an interesting time. I think the beginning of uh, the beginning of the uh, 2019-20 season. Um, it, it's funny now to look back at the things we were all worrying about, like oh, calendar. Clash- does this threaten existentially Formula E? And we, we had no idea what was what was uh, what was coming what was coming around the bend, shall we say? <laughs> Definitely, I think that nobody could have predicted that in the slightest. Mm. Um, talking of Sam Bird, uh, he had a wonderful first race there, uh, as did Mitch Evans, and they both looked utterly adrenaline soaked uh, in the um, post-race press conference uh, starting 11th and 12th on the grid they finished second and third and um, it wasn't just due to attrition as well that that Jaguar powertrain while it's not the fastest that is still the Mercedes uh, it's it's genuinely rapid and I think the Rome circuit with its uh, new more open spaces and with uh, greater overtaking opportunities you know, someone like Sam Bird, who um, l- turns a very low percentage dive bomb into something that looks higher percentage just by pulling it off right uh, nine out of ten times. He did a great job of taking taking full advantage of that, I thought. Um, Mitch Evans uh, had a quieter race, or at least was picked up less by television. But, uh, well, um, th- they both made it home on Saturday. And uh, I think that that was a true indication of their pace, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the Jaguar powertrain has had a very, you know, steady uh, progression in the past couple of seasons, especially, uh, you know, going from, I think, like 2019 um, onwards. Um, I mean, we all remember that the first win for the team and for Mitch Evans as well, if I'm not mistaken, was actually in Rome uh, in 2019. So there was definitely like a steady progression there. Um, And I think that honestly, uh, Jaguar also went with the right choice in, you know, getting Sam Bird um, into the team. Uh, because I think that in most occasions, yes, of course, the the powertrain is, uh, is competitive. That's that's no mistake about that. Um, but definitely, I think that in these occasions, and um, Sam and Mitch both proved that extensively um, in the past uh, in the past weekend. Um, experience really, really, really makes the difference in Formula E. Um, so I think that they can be, you know, not necessarily like a championship threat. But, you know, at the moment, they're actually leading both championships, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, yeah, there's something, they're definitely a team to look out for in terms of, you know, experience and consistency, if not in terms of like raw pace. Well, uh, Mitch was an outside championship threat uh, in the eighteen nineteen season, uh, going into New York even, uh, when we had six drivers uh, potentially uh, in line for the title. And... Um, he was uh, at least mathematically in the championship um, going into the Berlin six uh, six racer uh, last season. Um, I, I obviously Jaguar lost out a bit on development during the lockdown, and um, I don't think that that was an easy situation for any team. But when you look at Mercedes and how they were able to progress, I think Jaguar were very disappointed from their point of view, as were Venturi and uh, various other teams down the grid that maybe maybe hadn't put in the uh, kind of development that Mercedes had um, and uh, Tachito obviously had. I think they were pretty desperate to avoid that situation again. And um, I think we're seeing them really coming quick, quick out of the box as a consequence of them putting in the development dollars and the development time between seasons. That's my interpretation anyway. 
Yeah, definitely. I I agree wholeheartedly. Honestly, like um, of course there are regulation in regulations in place to avoid any sort of you know um, shortcuts. I guess we could say from coming from teams that definitely have you know more resources to to put in place into in um, into research and development. But as I remember, we were discussing also the the last time um, I came as a guest in your podcast. Uh, there has been a good turnover of, um, you know, kills and people at Mercedes coming from Formula One to Formula E and vice versa. Um, so I think that really, like in terms of human resources, um, of course, everybody does a, a great job uh, in Formula E with the limited, uh, you know, finances they have. Uh, but I think that in terms of human resources, Mercedes definitely has the upper hand on that. Absolutely. Um, but uh, it, it's it still seemed uh, coming out of this weekend like ultimately uh, Mercedes have the paciest powertrain and um, obviously in the hands of Stoffel Van Dorn they got the second race win. Um, and uh, that, that was a really classy drive from Van Dorn in what were what was a on what, what was a drying track uh, which had caught out uh, some other drivers and um, in the light of uh, there being uh, um, a full course yellow and um, and a safety car start, um, it, it was not an easy race to control from the front. But I, I think he really showed his uh, um, F1 and uh, Formula Two experience of, uh, of of driving under full course yellow conditions and of uh, controlling from the restart. And um, he just seemed like the uh, the the complete uh, driver for a drying track out there. Um, how impressed were you by Stoffel's performance on Sunday? I have to say, I was of course impressed, but I was definitely not surprised. I still think that uh, Stoffel has been an extremely underrated um, driver in his short <laughs> and unfortunate spell in Formula One. Um, and also considering what he was able to do in uh, in junior series and his incredibly commanding uh, championship win in GP2, um, honestly, I don't think that that was ever repeated after after that. Um, I was definitely not surprised um, to see that he was very quick to adapt to Formula E. He's in his third year, of course, so he has uh, heaps of experience, experience right now. But he was already, you know, very successful already in his rookie year in Formula Um So, yeah, no, I would say that definitely like Stoffel, if not this year already, but if he sticks to Formula he could definitely, definitely aim for a championship win because he has the experience, he has <clears throat> the, the pure racecraft, and of course he has the team to back that up. Yeah, and also in race two, uh, profiting from that Mercedes powertrain were Norman Nato and um, Edo Mortara. Uh, Nato took second on the grid, and um, th that was obviously in a very jumbled up qualifying that was uh, um, that that was uh, messed up by the the very wet conditions, um, but um, it made for great television nonetheless. Um, Nato, I think, uh, um, was the person in the right place at the right time. But you know, props to the guy because uh, you you don't win a race in WEC without without being a high quality driver. Um, he has driven in Formula E for uh, several years as a sim driver and as a reserve driver, so he 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 knows the car and presumably knows the track very well from from his sim experience as well. And um, he did a great job in uh, qualifying, but. Um, uh, in in the race, he also did a fine job. He actually, I think, was the uh, only Venturi driver to lead a race in the Gen Two era on the road. Uh, with Mortara taking his win in Hong Kong, uh, thanks to disqualification in uh, 2018-19. But um, sadly, he was disqualified uh, after just running out of energy on the line. Now, this is um, something that is very unfortunate it's something that uh, you know when you've got so many buttons and so many things to watch out for in a cockpit you know you um obviously it's it's on the driver and the team's watch when this happens but uh, it it was a sad end to the race considering uh, what a classy approach he'd taken to that race um and uh, it was a shame he lost uh, third place there um 
how how disappointed were you by uh, what Susie Wolfe uh, made out as being a team error? And uh, um, how much collective responsibility do you think there is, or was it purely uh, down to down to Nato not for watching that more on previous laps? Because obviously. Um, He's the guy um, with the pedals, but then he's also guided by his crew in terms of how much he needs to save, isn't he? Yeah, I think that there are, you know, uh, a lot of different perspectives in which we can we can, you know, analyze and see what happened. First of all, I'm I'm sure like it's it's nothing new to people uh, following from Lori for a while now. Um, but as much as you know, of course, um, these kind of things can happen and frequently happen in Formula E to pretty much everybody. We also have to recognize that just in terms of, you know, statistics, um, pit wall errors haven't been infrequent for Venturi. Um, there have been times also when Felipe Massa was part of the team um, in which uh, the cars, you know, ran out of energy and couldn't even take the checkered flag or other times in which, you know, a series of penalties and disqualifications were always coming from the side of, you know, failing to to correctly determine the amount of energy um, that was needed uh, for the race. Um, So there is kind of a pattern there. Honestly, of course, we have no way of knowing if it's something wrong with the pit wall, something wrong with the drivers, something wrong with the software. Um, that's really no way of knowing that. It's just interesting to see that it has happened to them more often than not and more often than the the rest of the teams. Um, but, I mean, I wouldn't even exclude a driver error, to be honest, um, because, you know, we all know how difficult it is to, to come into Formula E and actually drive the cars, handle the cars, and, and the type of conservative driving uh, you have to, to put in place to actually bring it home uh, without penalties. And we've seen that because every single race is just, you know, a sweep of penalties left and right to basically every driver on the grid. So I do expect a rookie to, to make these kind of mistakes still. I mean, he's just in his like third and fourth race. Um, mm. as a titular driver. I mean, we, we've had people like Felipe Massa doing even greater mistakes. So it's not something that surprises me. Um, so I honestly don't know where the, the responsibility lays. I think it's just interesting to see how this has happened, uh, you know, a, a number of times to Venturi already. That would be interesting to to find out why. Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, something else that w- would be interesting to find out the reason for is um, Nick Cassidy binning the car um, at, I think, turn four um, on the first lap of green flag racing on the in the second race. Um, he's the new driver for Envision Virgin Racing, uh, came in from... Um, a very successful stint as a works Toyota driver uh, in Super GT and Super Formula in Japan um, and um, came with a big reputation. Um, now, I, I think the general consensus was there is no way that he just bottled that under braking and, and lost it himself. And he was actually asking um, Stephen Lane on the radio, his engineer, um, what happened there? How, how did I lose that? So he, he couldn't believe it was his fault either. And I don't think that was purely a uh, standard racing driver excuse like we hear from uh, from other people. So um, <clears throat> Sam Smith uh, on the race uh, pointed out that um, uh, in the first lap, so before regen is available, um, there's no brake by wire. It's only mechanical braking. And uh, that um, some Formula E drivers in the past have been caught out by mechanical braking on um, in on the first lap. Um, but uh, it, it would be interesting at least to investigate, and this is something I'm going to try and do, um, the relationship between mechanical braking and brake by wire and whether the mechanical brakes um, are maybe... Um, particularly cold uh, on the first lap or whether there was whether there's something else uh, involved in Cassidy's spin because it was very strange however however way you look at it wasn't it yeah Lee honestly I was surprised um I don't follow Super GT closely um but I do know the kind of you know New Zealand driver scene pretty well fairly well from personal experience 
Um, and the general consensus in New Zealand is that basically Nick Cassidy is the fastest driver that the country has to offer. Um, which, considering the drivers coming from New Zealand, hmm. the likes of Mitch Evans and um, Brendan Hartley, is is a pretty bold statement, I think um, we can say. Uh, so, yeah, definitely, I wouldn't necessarily expect him to make this kind of mistake. And I think that his surprise was genuine. Um, but I also like wouldn't exclude the fact that he was so surprised because he was just not expecting that kind of behavior from the brakes. So he was, you know, kind of caught off by that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely very interesting. The brake-by-wire mechanism is extremely sophisticated technology, extremely delicate and very difficult to handle. So, um, I, I mean... Of course, you can't even, you know, make comparisons like this. But it's pretty much when when you're you're driving a different car than your usual, and you don't the clutch responds in a different way from from what you're you're usually, you know, uh, used to. Uh, and maybe the car just turns off randomly, and you don't even know why, and you're you're surprised by that. But it's just generally that the car behaves differently so yeah i'm sure that mechanical brake and brake by wire respond very differently um, from the driver's input um but honestly i think that in this case the team like would never you know put any responsibility on nick anyway because he made a you know an imp- he did an impressive job considering he's a complete rookie in the category and he doesn't have recent um single seater experience um, and I'm sure I'm sure he will remain competitive because, you know, he has a competitive car and he's a very fast driver. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one more thing to cover, because both races um, started under the safety car in Rome and um, it was such an adorable little safety car. I, I, I wanted to I wanted to beep it on its little nose. I am talking, talking, of course, about the uh, mini electric pace setter, which is uh, a much souped-up version of the uh, new mini electric car. Now, um, I like the fact that there's a mini a mini safety car. I think it's great for Formula E's image, and it's obviously great for Mini's image. And there are many people out there who still don't know that Mini has an electric car out. So great publicity. The, the question I've got is whether it's actually quick enough for what it's doing, because uh, the last safety car they had was the BMW i8 uh, petrol electric hybrid. Now, um, you, you don't really want a hybrid safety car for an electric formula, so I can see why they've gone this way, obviously with the sponsor being BMW, but uh, um, it, it did seem to be at the head of the field going rather slowly for a lot of the race, and I, I just wonder, because... Um, I, I looked at the performance figures uh, before the podcast and I'm just fiddling with my phone to get them now. Um, here we are. So um, the drive system is based, it says, on the on that found on the Mini Cooper SE, producing 135 kilowatts um, and 280 newton metres, um, blah, 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 100, 0 to 100 kilometres per hour in 6.7 seconds, uh, standard model 7.3 seconds and 0 to 60 in 3.6. Uh, standard model 3.9 so when we're not talking about the tesla p200d here this is not a this is not a massive step change in performance and um do do we need something a bit quicker at the head of the formula e field uh to avoid those tires uh um, losing too much pressure Honestly, um, I have to say, like, completely off topic, but um, I, I know I can sound a, a very biased against mini cars. It's just <laughs> that, in general, I just don't like driving minis. I've, dr- I've driven a, a mini multiple times, and uh, it was the worst experience of my life. I don't know why I'm just incapable of driving um, a mini, apparently. Uh, so, yeah, it's not exactly my favorite car around. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that, you know, apart from, of course, sponsorship deals and, you know, money ruling everything, I'm sure they, they kind of made their, their you know, their evaluations on whether the car was actually fast enough. Um, I would say that probably they didn't expect uh, necessarily to use it to that extent, especially with a safety car start, which is something that 
in general, like every every championship tries to avoid because it just deprives the audience of um, of a great you know spectacle opportunity. Um, although it was, I think it was needed at least on race one. I'm not sure it was really needed on race two, but definitely was needed in race one. Um, so I'm sure you know they they cracked the numbers of that. Um, I think that the main problem, as you were also saying before, might be tire temperatures. Um, and I think that was, of course, heavily influenced by the weather as well in uh, in Rome. So I think we've also noticed that every, every driver was trying to keep the tires as warm as possible, um, much, much more than we usually see them doing in Formula E. Uh, but to be fair, Formula E has traditionally raced in uh, fairly hot conditions, apart from a couple of, you know, bouts of very bad weather. I remember like Paris 2019 um, and Rome as well, because honestly, like April in Rome, it's, it's bound to be rainy. It's just how the weather is in Italy in April. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that maybe this will work better on slightly like warmer and drier uh, tracks and climates. And uh, we, sh- we should leave it at that. But uh, Aurora, thank you so much yet again. Um, follow her at The Racing Chick on Twitter and Instagram and uh, follow Motion E at Motion E Org uh, on uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, you can also find me on Patreon. Um, I'm on uh, patreon.com forward slash Motion E Org. And uh, we've got uh, 27 uh, articles that you can't find anywhere else, uh, including on the free site there. And um, uh, every race, I uh, analyze a specific driver as well. So, uh, yeah, that's something to look forward to. Uh, next race, we're going to uh, the Ricardo Tormo circuit near Valencia. Um it's not designed as a Formula E circuit and it's not part of, like I said, the original Formula E template to go to a permanent circuit. But uh, it's always been a good testing circuit. It's never really run uh, run a race with Formula E cars before. Obviously, it's a, it's a great circuit with bikes. Um, what do you make of this uh, temporary solution um, to make sure that we get enough races on the calendar while we have the virus in Europe? Um is it good enough from your point of view? And are you still looking forward to it with the kind of anticipation that you would do a city race? Um, well, to be honest, I, I think I'm more intrigued than I would be like in normal condition, just to say if you just to see if Formula E can actually work on kind of a regular circuit. I mean, the the talk as about Formula E has always been mostly about its you know, haters and detractors in general. Oh yeah, the cars are nice and they don't even think they're nice most of the time. But even those that think the cars are actually nice always complain about the idea of street racing, which is something that I honestly don't understand, but I think it's a matter of taste. Um, I do love, you know, races like Macau and I think they are some of the most challenging and most entertaining races you can have, you know, in international motorsports. Um, but yeah, maybe like this can prove the, the detractors wrong. Um, hopefully it won't prove them right, uh, about for Marie. And, um, yeah, to be honest, like in Valencia, we've always had testing, um, but we've all, we've also had, um, kind of simulated races in the past during testing weekends, um, with, you know, very, very weird results, of course, because they were just simulated races. But the drivers do have a taste of what it's like to, to kind of race each other in, uh, in Valencia. So, no, actually, to answer to your question, I'm looking forward to Valencia more than, than I would do, you know, any other round in the calendar. <laughs> Well, um, that's excellent. Uh, I think it will certainly um, call the bluff of many people, including myself, actually, who have said, why doesn't Formula E go to more permanent circuits? It, um, it, it should go to permanent circuits. So th- this is uh, v- very much uh, a trip back to the sort of uh, tr- traditional burger van by the side of the circuit type uh, type track. And uh, w- w- we'll, s- we'll see if it can maintain the excitement. I, I would say from my point of view, um, Formula E 
is what it is because of the feeling of speed with those buildings and with those uh, with the closeness of everything to uh, in proximity to the track and with the with the crowd right next to the cars and uh, and and with the um, with the real need to search for overtaking opportunities as well that that feels like it makes Formula E what it uh, what it always has been. Um, it will be interesting you're right to see if it can maintain the excitement at a permanent track and uh, i guess the proof of the puddings in the eating but uh, certainly the race organizers have um, announced the new um, configuration of the ricardo tormo circuit uh, it's going to be different to testing and so it'll be a very different challenge for everyone um christian silk from neo 333 racing said um uh, um, said he was very pleased with Tom Blomqvist's uh, ninth place and another two points from uh, Rome but the next race is a very different challenge and I, I guess he's right we'll have to see after that it's uh, Monaco which again is uh, not a circuit that um, that anyone can say is their favourite Formula E circuit because it always feels like a Baudelaire's version of the Formula 1 track but uh, this, this time I think people are just glad to go somewhere that is, that is on the regular Formula E calendar where where they can they can feel good about the championship again um how do you feel about the Monaco Formula E configuration and uh, how how do you feel about uh, this year's staging of the race because Monaco's been as far as I can tell relatively successful with vaccinations but uh, um, how much does that uh, play into uh, how they'll run it and do you think they'll have fans at the track as well well to be honest um, in terms of the track, um, I, I do have to be a bit critical of Formula E from time to time, you know, just just to maintain my my impartial, uh, you know, vision on it. Um, I think that the layout is definitely like a, a decent layout, definitely not one of my favorites, but I do think that it will remain slightly different from Formula One, even though they're trying to, you know, make it closer and closer for the simple fact that, I think that based on like sheer calculations, Formula E cars will be seven or eight seconds slower than Formula One cars on uh, on the regular layout, um, and that is not a good look for the championship. To be honest, they are trying their best, and I think they're right in doing so, to avoid any sort of comparison with Formula Formula One. Because yeah, the cars are obviously not as performing. It's a completely different type of of a vehicle and of handling. Um, so yeah, honestly, I'm not I'm not exactly you know overwhelmed by <laughs> by having the Monaco Ypri again. But it's it's good to have you know some some feeling of normalcy. As for vaccination, to be honest. Um, I think it will be kind of the same thing as it was in Rome, like a very, a very peculiar type of race, uh, something that kind of feels like it shouldn't have been done, but it's safe nonetheless. All right. Well, uh, thank you again, Aurora. And uh, obviously, shots fired. Um, our social graphic, <laughs> with, our social graphic with the uh, with the quote uh, from this podcast will be the mini is the worst car I've ever driven. Um. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'm not. I'm not back, backing from that. I stand by that statement. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Motion E podcast. And uh, we will be back with another program about something else totally different very soon. All the best. 